Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Jimmy Laval from the Album Leaf. Jimmy and I met up in Los Angeles to talk about his early days from the 90s in San Diego being exposed to DIY and Screamo, to touring with bands like the Get Up Kids, Piebald, and we also dive into his Album Leaf project, how he met Sigur Ross, the Sub Pop Records days, and how he's now busy with film scoring. It all makes sense on how each one happened because he put himself out there and was involved. Jimmy's story is one of constant creativity and making connections. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this podcast happen. Any amount is greatly appreciated as it goes toward the upkeep of the websites, podcast servers, and distribution. If you want to help out, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 164 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Jimmy Laval from the Album Leaf. for being on the podcast thanks for having me san diego that's where you were born born and raised and so getting into music what were some of the first spots that you were seeing music or getting exposed to music early on um my high school years basically was when i started kind of discovering um just you know non-mainstream music just the, the underground kind of underground world back then in san diego there was spaces uh che cafe obviously was um one of the most um famous spaces and still exist actually um and a friend of mine actually just played there a couple weeks ago which is so i it's kind of nice to see that it's still alive and going um and then back then too was um tim mays who's kind of a like prolific uh just mainstay promoter in san diego he has a venue called the Casbah, but the Casbah is a bar. So obviously I was, you know, underage, but he also promoted just a, many events throughout the San Diego, just in different places. There was a, I, I specifically remember seeing this um, concert that's, uh, it was called May Day and it was at the Starlight Bowl in Balboa Park. And I've never seen or heard of another show ever to happen there wow. again. Um, and it's this old, just like, you know, amphitheater out, outdoor and um it's the first time i saw like through mile pilot which was a huge kind of influence for me back in and uh 
those days and just kind of discovering and it was like a san diego scene showcase you know um a miniature and like drip tank and uh chinchilla um oh right like all there's like that that era of san diego just like 93 94 kind of era um you're still in high school still in high school i graduated in 96 um but throughout that time period too it seems like there was a bunch of like venues popping up um there was this place called cafe chabalaba um which in my mind i feel like in the time period i thought these places were just so big or just like you know but they in in reality they were just you know little kind of coffee shops and stuff like that like there was also shows at espresso roma at sdsu um which was also near the old the there was used to be two off the records and off the record was kind of like the 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 really kind of the go-to mm-hmm. record store um you know all vinyl and all that kind of stuff i bought my first record from off the record in hillcrest they used to have in stores um i saw jehu do an in-store there i saw unwound do an in-store there um nirvana did an in-store there um you saw it i didn't see it i did see nirvana at the san diego's uh sports arena what year um it was 93 so, so you was, were uh, like a freshman a, yeah it was the in utero tour wow when i saw it um lucy's fur coat and i think uh somebody else opened for what i think i want to say it might have been smashing pumpkins but i did see smashing pumpkins at the at the uh del mar fairgrounds and this around the same time period but what's crazy i just finished reading serving the servants which Uh is danny goldberg's book about nirvana and what's is more of a music business side and it's got these you he's talking about these conversations with Kurt where he's literally concerned about what the punk kids will think. Yeah. And we were talking you know, right. just a little bit earlier, just sort of like that mentality. Like, I feel like right. he was still this giant artist, but he still was like, well, yeah. what are the punk kids going to totally, think? Totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how did the, how did that start then? Was, what was it, what was appealing about that scene or just that ethic that connected you versus just throwing the radio on i th- i feel like it was just it, it it was just like it was like an onion really because it was like you I couldn't f- find I it f- all first yeah you couldn't find it all and i felt like my first i think my first introduction to that world was fugazi and then from fugazi it just kind of like i had a girlfriend in high school who was obsessed with fugazi and you see you you would see that sticker and their logo like everywhere all the time you know it was like that sticker right everybody had that thing um and that kind of peeled off yeah it was just like fugazi and i bought i remember the first record i bought was in on the kill taker like my first actual vinyl that i bought myself was in on the kill taker and i think from there I'm not sure how it happened, but like the just, yeah, the layers of the onion just kept being peeled and I would just discover more things, find more things, meet friends and f- discover things from friends. Um, because yeah, I mean, as we like, this was the mid nineties or early nineties and there was no internet, there was no anything that was just literally record store, word of mouth, friends, shows, um, going to a show and having no idea what you were going to see. Um, do you miss that? Definitely. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Uh, I used to book shows at this place called Soul Kitchen in in, in East County. Um, and my old band actually is that uh, <laughs> my old band that I had with Gabe Serbian from The Locust. Um, pre, we were like fifteen. Um, Was it Swing Kids? This pre that. Wow. Um, this is band called. It was this band called Steel Tree. Terrible, terrible band. Um, 
and it was my first kind of real band you know it was like the first time i played bass and i <clears throat> first time i like wrote songs and, and stuff like that and uh we were into like we were into like native nod and like moss icon and like bands like that <laughs> we would have um, been friends yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and like that like whole like kind of like you know mono talking you know um also like still life which mm-hmm. was uh, which was around too that time period um but our music didn't really reflect that. Our singer kind of did, but it was more like, you know, that was around the time of like Kerplunk, Green Day Kerplunk. And that was like, you know, before the kind of, um, and around the time period that Dookie was just about to come out. Mm-hmm. Too. So there was a lot of like that kind of, um, those, that era of things being kind of pushed. Um, but that band was really bad. My, the point of this, this little tidbit story is the fact that um, we played a show with Blink we are now Blink-182. And um, back then it was on a, uh, the way you could be paid for shows was on a, a tally, door tally right. basis, a dollar. It still you know, happens. Like whoever you say, oh, who are you here to see? Dude, you get a mark and that's your, that's your dollar. Um, and Blink was really mad because we had brought out more people than they did. <laughs> and uh, it's just kind of a funny, funny story. Like that, you know, there's a... <laughs> that they were mad too. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. Or, or just like, hey, you know, I don't know. Because they, they we played, there was four bands, we played third, they played fourth. Um, <clears throat> it was also like our record release too that we you, know, you had a lot going for it. Yeah, yeah, come on, it was like we had two, <laughs> we recorded these two songs or four songs. It's a hometown like, show. Yeah, I for love Blink that. it was a hometown show too because right. they're from. Oh yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, so <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, so that was like mid nineties. It was mid nineties. It was ninety four, um, ninety four or ninety five. I think. But. Did you know that? I mean, San Diego's a big city. I'm from a super small town, so yeah. like you, I couldn't. No, I was mostly regional bands. Like, did you still feel that? Did you feel connected? Like, did it feel that you were, when you started reading the magazines or starting to go to shows or seeing the distros and did you start to feel like, oh, wow, everybody's kind of coming through here or we've got something going on? I don't think I could put that together. I think it was just kind of like I was in the experience and it was happening and I didn't think, you know. You didn't know anything else. I didn't know anything else and I didn't. And I didn't feel like particularly lucky, like, oh my God, all these bands are coming here and I get to see them. I kind of just like, I don't know what they would come and I'd be like, oh, cool. Unwound's coming. That's amazing. I'm going to go see them. You know, something like that. And, yeah. and, or bands coming down from, you know, like Carp and, um, you know, a lot of like Northwest bands that would come down and come through. Um, and also, so that was kind of like the, my high school era. And then my senior year um, is when I kind of met and discovered the quote unquote, like, san diego hardcore scene so my sophomore year or my junior year is when i think is when swing kids started and swing kids we used to play at this place called soul kitchen that i booked and we would play shows with them and we kind of started as like slowly cross and and justin obviously was kind of like a he was a super big influential piece of that scene of that puzzle um and predating him was aaron montang who was uh singer for Antioch Arrow and Antioch Arrow started and Gravity Records started and all that kind of stuff happened and that was like really um, that's huge huge and huge for San Diego you know like Heroin um, the band Heroin um, which Aaron played drums for um, and that was when the haircut started and the clothes and the high water pants and like the, the look you know was like all of that kind of originated back then and we all just like just ate it up like candy you know like everybody just started like cutting their haircuts and we were called Spock Rockers and like all this kind of stuff you know um, you guys hated that term and like yeah we hated the term or I think we started to embrace it too there's photos actually Justin just sent me a because we used to go to um, 
Olin Mills, which was like a photo and like take, we would take like these, all these funny photos with like the, you know, the proper backdrop, right. the library books or the like, yeah, yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. And we have these series of photos with all of us as a crew, we would just go down and take these photos. And it's kind of cool actually, because it was before obviously iPhones and you could just like snap a photo. It's like we'd go and we'd get these like professional photos taken yeah. and like have them in like a, you know, physical form and in a photo album or up on the wall in our hallway of our house or something like that. That's you know? cool. Um, and um, so it was kind of a cool thing that used to happen back then. And I got a photo from that time period with my haircut. And, and it's just kind of funny. Um, <laughs> JP sent it to me not too long ago. Um, but anyway, so I discovered that, like, I remember seeing bands like that time period. I never saw Antioch Arrow, um, but there was this, there was a lot of house shows happening. It was like Click Attack, Atali, um, Swing Kids, uh, Unbroken. Um, uh, and that whole, there was bands like Julia, uh, these like kind of like smaller bands and never kind of didn't really get that far out of San Diego, but I think for a time period they did, um, as far as word of mouth at least, like maybe not touring, but um, word of mouth definitely spread. And like I felt like there was this there was this band called Giver One, and um, Giver One and the Locust kind of started around the same time period, and I remember seeing them at um, Che Cafe and stuff like that. And also they had this house in Golden Hill, which is kind of a notorious house for the San Diego history. It's called Golden Hill House or the Avocado 500 Club is what it was called. Um, it's on 24th and E, and there was a lot of shows that used to happen in that um, in that living room upstairs. And my senior year... I met, I kind of met all those people. I spent my, my junior year watching all of these bands from afar and kind of like, uh, you know, idolizing or looking up to them. And, or and were like, you playing at the time? I was also playing. Gabe and I had a band together um, called, well, it was Steel Tree and then we turned into a band called Jedi Mind Trick. Um, Gabe was really, really into Star Wars. I'm sure he still is. But, um, uh, and so we had this band called Jedi Mind Trick and we started getting a little more traction in San Diego and started playing like being playing these shows with like swing kids and not just other, watching yeah not just watching we started like playing with these bands um there was also this warehouse called 14th and c um and it was like crash worship it was a guy from crash worship that ran that place and um this guy skyler is really cool and just kind of embraced us and took us took our band on and would put us on a lot of bills that he would do at his warehouse um so we'd play with like their mob pilot um before i knew them and um, just like that was kind of how we started to like started to blend with these things and you know and then my senior year the guitar player for Guyver One um, I don't know met all those guys they were looking for a new guitarist and my best friend um, in in high school and I started playing guitar for Guyver One um, his name was Corey and um, around the same time I think that because we were like we were 17 um the guys in the band where they were all about two, three years older than us. And so we were like this new crop of kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I'll say I was a badass guitar player then. And that's kind of like where they were like, Oh, like those guys are like, these guys are super talented. They're super badass. They're such, they're kids, you know, like this is rad. And, um, so I was asked to join locust on keyboards. Um, so I was the locust first keyboard player. And so at the same time I was playing and the locust had just done like a personnel change. The two, they used to have two singers, Dylan from struggle. And then this guy, um, uh, Dave, uh, who was kind of like the lower voice, and they mm -hmm. used to do shows with like we used to do shows with like Man is the Bastard and Bastard Noise and all this like that kind of world. Um, and there was a lot of influence as far as like the singing style of that like kind of like 
high screaming and low juxtaposition like like the low rumble um those two guys quit and so locust became a three-piece and i filled it out as a fourth and keyboard player so for a time period i was just doing both guyver and locust um and then it started to get a little tricky and we would do longer house shows and it started to get a little tricky as far as like i think it was just egos um with the singer of the guyver one and and justin um they were roommates and they kind of you know there's a lot of just a lot of like underground competition going on <laughs> yeah um, who's gonna get on the show you're just like who's cooler or i don't just like dumb stuff you know like really how high your like pants are thing. yeah totally yeah <laughs> um it's probably not <laughs> not too far off but um but at any rate I guess backtracking just slightly was like, I felt like I came up in this world and I was introduced to this kind of cool clubs, like hipster world. And, you know, my hair was the certain way, my, my, my pants, my clothes, my whatever. Um, and it was just, I felt like I was just like too cool for school. Right. Um, spring break of my senior year was my first tour. And I, and I, it was a uh, Guyver one and we, I remember asking my parents because we were offered to play this show, the Michigan Fest in Detroit. Um, and I remember asking my parents, like, oh, can I do it? And, like, I don't know. I could, I'm could. i a father now, and I couldn't imagine, like, letting my son, like, <laughs> hop in a van with eight dudes. Like, <laughs> Go to Michigan. Where, yeah, and, like, a man, and just drive to f- Michigan and back in a week, you know? And they were like, cool. And they were cool, and they let me do it. And it's also like a loft, so there's eight of us in a van, so it was like one bench, two front seats, and a loft. So it was like constantly three people in a loft. Like, wow. It was, it was, and it was awesome. It was super Of course fun, it was. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but I remember that tour being the most, like, kind of like eye-opening experience for me because I, it was the first time I, obviously I left um, uh, California without my parents. I used to take a lot of road trips and stuff like that, um, but, but um, yeah by yourself stuff like that but but by myself without my parents with like a crew of friends nobody was over 20 um and we had these shows set up and it was the first kind of my first exposure of like i remember playing um i think we actually played eric from christy front drive's house on that tour in colorado in colorado um it would have been boulder put in boulder yeah yeah um and just like picking up the pieces along the way and doing all these house shows, you know, like I, th- I remember meeting a really strong crew of hardcore kids in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, and playing house shows there, just like playing all these things. And the thing was, is like getting out of my stuck up, too cool for school, San Diego immediate scene and being exposed to all these people that kind of wore their hearts on their sleeves and the Midwest, like just culture and like also like the Michigan fest and like all of those people that were just like seeing bands that were, I mean, we like, they, they were the, they just were that they were like emo, you know, like that was like, <laughs> yeah. know, as we don't want to say the word, but really, but it's like, they were like the legit, like, you know they would be playing shows and and playing and like crying on the like the singers crying and like everybody's everybody's bummed and stare. I don't know it was just this kind of funny like whoa this is insane but also like such like vulnerability and honesty behind it at the same time that it was just like wait a minute euphoria yeah it's like bit. wait a minute like here I am this like stuck up seventeen year old like think I'm too cool for school kind of kind of kid me being exposed to this world of people that are just really open and really honest and really 
heartfelt and really warm and really caring and really genuine. And it was like, this is amazing. Like this, this scene is something I want to be a part of. This is like, this is incredible. Um, and we had that somewhat in our own thing, but it was a lot of like snobbery and yeah. between us and just like, you know, stuff like that. But that was the tour that I met Christopher um, Sprague, who was at a band called Constantine Sankati. Um, and met him. They played the Detroit Fest. I met him that, and we kind of all like had this like, Michigan Fest or Detroit Fest. It was Mi- two different. Uh, d- d- well, Michigan Fest, but it was it was out. It was. Was it called Detroit? It was called the Detroit Fest. There was also a house what year in, was that? That would have been '96. Yeah, they hadn't. I'm trying to remember because I'm seeing the flyer right now, and I just remember right. like those those were stacked lines up lineups. Yeah, I mean when you look back at those <laughs> things, it was like, and it was these just empty where like VFW halls kind of like things with like two stages or no stage, and it was just or on the floor. Um, I remember there's I've seen so many photos of those shows, and it's like if there was a stage, most bands opted to play on the floor anyhow. Right. Um, and um, yeah, it was just it was just it was cool. Um, and the people I met during that time definitely were just, it was the kind of thing where it's just like, they're open, honest, cool people. And it's like, man, this is just like, I felt like it was like a personality change for me, something that was just really profound, like for me to see that kind of like attitude and not feel so kind of bottled up. Work together. Um, yeah. Hey, I'm doing yeah. this. What are you doing? Right. And um, fast forward to the spring or to the summer after that, um, after I graduated high school, um, within two or three days later, I went on a uh, full U.S. tour, six weeks with Jenny Piccolo, Locust, um, and um, same kind of thing, playing house shows all over the place, meeting friends, playing um, with this band called Resin. What was his name? Jason. I forget what his name was, but those guys were really cool. They're from Rapid City. And then we like, that was the thing, like Rapid City, South Dakota, like how'd you get into this? Exists there? Like where, how did you even end up there? And I have a friend, still a good friend of mine who's from Rapid City that I met on that tour. He lives in New York. He's a photographer. And it's like, I'm still friends with him to wow. this day. You know, and I still have a lot of friends from that era that are just like, we could not see each other for, you know, almost a decade. And you're still like, kind of like just all of those, that, that time period um, of, playing house shows, playing basements, playing VFW halls, playing makeshift art spaces, DIY spaces, then continuing on, you know, playing these stacked bills, like five, six bands and, you know, like things that I could never even deal with these days, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, what are the set times? Now. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, um, just like, just the looseness and just like not caring. And then also like continuing and like staying, sleeping on people's floors, like sleeping on the house, listen, staying up with like local kids that you met that day, like listening to records and discovering new music and just like talking about bands and talking about this and talking about the scene, talking about politics, talking about, um, you know, I don't know, like, back then was also like an animal rights thing right just like huge just a lot of like a lot of different um stuff that just was just really connecting you know with a lot of the that kind of community and then creating friendships creating pen pals like writing letters back and forth and and um you know things like that so that kind of like exposure into different communities across the states like knowing that there was a community just like us in rapid city or just like us in like mississauga canada this guy i remember this guy gordon who was just like 
um, I can't remember what he was, but also all those festivals as you would play, you would also meet like the local like distros and exactly like, those distros, and they had and their the zines, and you open that zines. up, and you're like, oh, yeah. well, oh, that's happening in Maine, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Cerberus Shoal was from from Maine, right? And that was a band too. You're like, what? You're like, they're from Portland, Maine. I was like, and that band was really really awesome prolific i think they're like a 12 piece or eight piece or something wow. like that too um which was unheard of back then too um growing up in vermont it would be montreal we'd right. hear you know we'd hear from them what was going on in canada yeah. and then they would it just a i don't know it felt like there was like a i don't know like the like the horse was riding like the information was sl- slower to get to places but when it did it seemed to have an impact yeah that i don't know if you could quantify right like one issue of Maximum Rock and Roll right. at that one punk place. Yeah. I don't know how attack. many kids picked that up. Yeah, or and Heart Attack. Or so Heart Attack. That, yeah. Which was like, that was my, the West, well, I guess Maximum Rock and Roll was, where were they from? Was it Chicago? I don't remember, actually. I mean, I remember Kim McClard and, and um, Ebullition and Heart Attack and that whole, he had his whole yeah. world. But even the yeah. regional ones of like, no, this is the one to get for right. this because they know Florida or they know. Totally. Yeah. And that discovery part yeah i mean your brain that first tour must and then especially that summer on the six week one i mean yeah. you're a sponge yeah. it doesn't everything yeah. is coming everything in. i think everything for the next three years of that time period for me was i was a sponge <clears throat> it was just everything was just yeah you know i went to europe for the first time in the in 97 you know like that was my first tour with um, the locust with the locust um we did shows with final exit and refused which you know like played in umeo sweden and and then also discovered a world of people with our haircuts it was kind of funny <laughs> they were like super influenced by the san diego scene yeah you know, like all of our uh, our style and stuff and um and that was a huge tour for me too um just the people i met and all just that whole that whole thing vic simba yeah from, um, i love vic yeah she booked that tour for us. Like we flew, flew, landed in London. She picked us up at the airport. We Get drove. Out. We stayed at her. We stayed at her dad, her dad's house in Leeds. Played our first show in Leeds, <laughs> and she drove us the entire tour. Um, was, she was at Victory, right? She was at Revelation, she, Revelation forever. Yeah, she yeah, just Revelation. left. I know. Yeah, like a year ago or maybe yeah, six months. I get ago. all those labels confused. Victory, yeah. Revelation, and all, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, they it all wasn't my, wasn't my scene, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um. That's yeah, really that cool. The, I mean, that was, I mean, you got the crash course. Yeah. Yeah. That was how. What it, was it feeling yeah. like? Did it feel like it was going somewhere? Did you think at that moment? Yes. You don't know now. Yeah. Like you knew now, but like, did you, I'm going to do this. Like, I want to, I want to do X. I, yeah. I did. I mean, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was possible, I guess. And when I first went to Europe, it was like. Yeah, it was just an. It was an. It was the same kind of thing, and also playing with like. That was where also where I first like discovered squats. You know, like just we would play in a lot of houses that were just squatted and like these huge spaces, and also Europe they like they just cook these massive meals and everybody's fed and everybody's happy and everywhere. Like it's just such a, it was such a rad community, right? Like like, to, to discover in Europe above the level of the states and states everywhere was warm too but there was like a there's and there still is like a, a an added level of warmth and just generosity and hospitality in europe um that existed um and then uh the talent of bands too and like their sound was a little bit different too because they're european and but there was a lot of bands that were kind of 
you know, along the same lines of doing the same kind of music, but just like their sound was just that much different or like that much tighter or like the tone of their amps or, you know, stuff like that, like where you would just kind of like grab on to a lot of things and just being, and it was just discovery of like seeing a really good band that you never heard of. You didn't hear their record. You didn't know what they sounded like. You would just see it right there in front of you, standing on the floor in front of you, you know, I think nine times out of 10, never being able to hear vocals because everybody's just right. got their amps. Yeah, got two lamps too loud. Just, everybody's just, you know, and it was, it was awesome. It was just really awesome. It's not to say now isn't awesome because the way to be able to connect with people and, and talk and, uh, you know, be able to connect by the internet and, but I love that you're at that show and you're not, um, you don't have your phone. Like you're in the moment you're there. There's a photo I have of a show of I was at and every face is looking at the lead singer. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, my dad was a teacher. He taught, I, you know, he taught, you need to look at someone when we talk to him. That, that was important. I feel like you were in the moment. Yes. And that, like, I'm sorry to do that, but like, I, I literally just got like tagged by, um, you know, Jesse Keeler from, um, he was in DFA no. from above 1979. And I know the band. I don't yeah, remember now him. Now he's in yeah. Mastercraft. Um, where he does that. But basically, he just uh, tagged me in this photo of an old show from, um, I, th- I know you know Sean Scallon. Yes. Remember him? The old old school photographer. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, man, where is it? Um, there it is. So this is old photo. I think it was a show in Oz County and Sincati. Um, and then, yeah, he's, he's, he just tagged me. He's like, photo bomb and pick two. I think he I'm, tagged boom, me right in this. There. I'm, like, I'm right Wow. <laughs> <laughs> terrible haircut. Terrible, sh- like, I don't even know. I have no idea. But, like, that was, you know. And this band, I, like, this is the kind of thing. I'm like, look at that. You can see it, like, right there. Like, oh. Yeah, they're you know, losing their minds. And losing their minds, you know. And I remember Joe, he was such a performer, like the singer for Constantine. And like, you know, That's it was just, amazing. and Ian was such a, like all of these guys, like when they played a show, you were just like, whoa. Like I've never seen a band with like that much emotion and that much like just letting it go and feeling it that much. Almost to a point where you kind of question, you're like, well, that's a little, maybe too much. But you're like, no, they're like, they're legit. Like it's like legitimately being felt in a, in a way. I saw this band called Frail from oh, yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, of course, yeah. and they got the kid that got grounded for playing the show in Burlington. He like talked about it. He's like, I'm being grounded when I get back, and I wasn't <laughs> supposed to do this tour. But then it was like the most epic, you know, thing. Right. Yeah, and people still talk about it. Yeah, and so I feel like the you're right. Like that time period is like that's a very real time period right there. Like that's like the. That's that time period, that moment. In but time. we had it. We didn't have the internet, but right. we maybe had it. We maybe dialed up. We maybe yeah. had dial up, or we might have I didn't had dial up until ninety nine, and it was AOL or Net Zero or something like yeah, that. Prodigy then, yeah, Prodigy or something like that. But the connection of finding something like that, or the being at the finding those people in a physical place, uh, I think had had a lot of weight. Yeah, and versus an email, right. Yeah, totally. Or an Instagram friend. Yeah. No well, offense to any of that stuff. It's no. fantastic. Yeah. The weight of... The phone call. Yeah, the phone call. Yeah. Talking to someone, Talking, hearing their yeah. voice. Hey, I'm going to... I'm so well. What's going on? I'm coming through on, you know, looks like we can, like, book a show around this time period. Like, well, can you do something? Oh, yeah, let me call my... Let me, I'll get back to you or something like that. And then, like, you... Or writing a letter, all that kind of stuff. You <laughs> the know. waiting. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah, totally. 
I didn't. You didn't need an immediate response, you know. Like when you get a text, it's like you almost like feel like, oh, I got a good. I don't know. Like <laughs> yeah. Respond to this person or or whatever it is, or an email. Oh, we need to let you know, or like, you know, it was just like, oh, we're just waiting to hear back, you know. <laughs> but it's. I think that's a that's an interesting special time that you were in. That I think you were learning about the DIY. The, the it wasn't. I call it pre bleed American a little bit because also Jimmy Roller. Yeah, yeah, just because the. The shit went to hell. Yeah. And before that, it was sort of this time when things weren't as fast. Yeah. And maybe there was more time to contemplate or yeah. more time to think or sit with someone. And I yeah. feel like uh, that was that that was it. Right. From that other day after, it was yeah. all different. And, if, and the other thing that's, well, that's interesting about this is like, so, you know, during that time period, I went through another, like I went through Crimson Curse. I started playing with Swing Kids and we did like, you know, all these kinds of, you know, similar things and, and shows like that. But then Christopher from Constantine's and Cotty moved out to San Diego. Um, we'd started Crimson Curse together and he was my roommate and we had, we were like really just like the best of friends back then. And um, we started a band called Tristeza and another guy, Jimmy Lehner, um, was in a band called Bev Clone. He was from Saginaw. Um, Bev Clone also was in another band that was playing in the same circuit, Constantine's Bev Clone, like that just Midwest scene. Mm-hmm. He moved out too. And so then we started this band, Tristeza. Um, and the same ethic of calling around and just booking your own shows and just being like, all right, let's go on tour. Okay, cool. And then you kind of collected your list of all the people that you knew in your notebook or whatever it was, called everybody, um, booked yourself a tour, got shows, went out. Like if sh- certain shows weren't happening, you're like, ah, oh, whatever. We'll just make something happen, you know. And then you know, or you would just drive overnight and like pull into a Walmart parking lot in the morning and like fall asleep on the grass in the shade or something like you know. A lot of like it's a photo of us. Um, there was a. Uh, it was actually Piebald, Jay June, Tristeza. Um, I want to say the Glory record too. We were all on this tour together. Great tour. Yeah. <laughs> and we were all on this tour together. There's a photo of us all crashed out on on a on a lawn outside of a parking lot. Wow. Room, you know, like just sleeping because we'd all I don't know. Um, but that's that's cool though because yeah. the the being able to have those experiences together, but also different types of music. Yeah. Which you guys were... Well, that was the thing that was... So th- that, that's that's kind of what I was shift. getting into. Yeah, I was kind of getting into the fact that, like, so Tristezza, like, we were not like any of those bands. We were not at all. Um, we went on that first... We went on a tour, but we knew a lot of those people, like, from the... From the and they were cool the Michigan world, yeah. And um, from just the hardcore world. You yeah. Know, just, like, those, those fests. Like, I remember there was an Ohio fest. There was a Michigan fest. There was a fest in Philly. There was a... Fe- you know, all over the place. Um... And I remember we did this one tour. We ended up playing in Memphis at this town and this venue called Barristers. And we played with the band called the Get Up Kids. And that was the first. And we met them and we had hit it off. And super good friends. Um, and not anything musically similar by any means. Yeah. You know. Um, Especially that year. Yeah. And um, they just like said, hey, you should come out and do some shows with us. Like, just con- continue on the tour with us. Wow. And so then we just went out with them for a long time. And um, also, that was like down to like Houston. And like, and they were, they were, Doghouse was like the, the shit. Back yeah. Then, you know? And they were like blowing up. And like, we kind of got put in front of a lot of this, a lot of these people because Get Up Kids kind of took us out and took us under their wing. And obviously, we were a different style of music. We were like, 
you know, arpeggiated guitar, instrumental, dreamy, mellow, you know, we were not pop or that, that scene. Yeah. Um, but the same thing, like Jimmy Eat World were good friends of ours too. So we'd play shows with them in both Phoenix and in San Diego before they, I think it was just around when Clarity came out and I don't think they had fully blown I mean, Clarity blew them up. A little bit in the yeah. R scene, but they got dropped. So. Yeah, but then there was like the next record, I think. Yeah, got, Bleed. They, they got bigger. Yeah, um, but that time too, it was, it was that they were period. doing those shows. Yeah, they were doing shows, same thing. And like we did a lot of shows with them. We did shows with the Glory record. We did shows like Austin was like a really big... Um, Why did it work? I don't know. I think it was just a sense of community and friends or I, you know i think that's what really what it came down to because i mean to be honest i'm not really i'm not at all a fan of that music uh, or the, those bands really um and i wasn't then it was just like about the like camaraderie and like the friendship and like kind of like you can put that aside you're like oh you know i'm not really but you were really, probably great yeah. to hang out with exactly yeah, we were just fun like we like, were that's, like but it was they the want thing. some yeah. oh you're cool we like your music yeah. i just feel like there wasn't this package of you needed it to be the get up kids light or you needed to yeah. be a poor man's glory record like right. yeah no come out with us we're gonna dig it and yeah i that's when you go to a show and you don't know what's gonna happen and you do hear that yeah maybe there's a more openness i felt that oh cool that band like i didn't know what frail sounded like right. before it was just a word right and then i'm like oh wow they sound like this that there blew was my mind about that word too because you like you would know frail like, a little oh, bit what is that bad what is that you band? never know that's yeah <laughs> but it's tough you're right that yeah. one's a little probably bad example but i think that's an interesting piece where you were in these harder bands punk bands oh it's san diego and then you shift and say i want to yeah. i want to make this type of music what was what was the urge to so, make that type of instrumental arpeggio sort of stuff? So for for me, I was always, um, so around that same time period is kind of when I discovered the Chicago scene, and that was a scene that Chicago and Louisville. So like initial Rodin, records, Rachel's, um, uh, June of forty four, Tortoise obviously, um, and kind of everything that trickles down from Tortoise and all their projects and and um, I can see where this is going. Yeah, and so <laughs> I kind of like discovered all of that, um, and um, at the same time as also listening to like Crossed Out and Rorschach and you know like Manus the Bastard and like Shotmaker. There's like Maximilian Colby and like Hoover. Right. So there was kind of like you could see like the different. You had a Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. A little bit. But also like there's all these bands in the, across the middle. There was so much. There was. There was such a juxtaposition of like the Rachels to like crossed out, um, and you could kind of create this whole arc of bands that kind of just fit all the way like evenly through the middle of like oh this band's a little this band's this mellow and then a little bit harder a little bit harder a little bit harder and then this is like the extreme or whatever mm -hmm. um and there was so much music like that and and it was good it was all really good and like i was a fan of it all really um of i remember that shot maker record was one of my favorite records it was a shot maker maximilian colby split too which was amazing and i don't remember where those bands were from um there was a hoover lincoln record that split that was two-sided coin i think was what it was called mm -hmm. that record like blue there was all this, this all of this music that i was discovering um and at the same time i mean i discovered angel hair a lot earlier but then angel hair turned into vss which was a little bit more just a slightly more accessible you know mm -hmm. um they were still like 
really heavy. And that was also the first band I saw with their own light show, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> um, and it was just Sonny stepping on, like, I think probably power strips. Right. <laughs> um, but, like, also, like, Andy from VSS used, um, uh, um, uh, he had a Juno 60. And it was, like, kind of the basis of their whole sound. And he would switch back and forth between the Juno 60 and, um, and the bass. Um, this I've totally gone off. No, but this here, is but got, like, getting yeah. to the. Yeah, I think that's the like I got. I've got way into in- instrumental music. Like yeah. I loved Tristeza. Like I loved Blackheart Procession. Right. Like Gloria Record right. started having me dive into different things yeah. of like, wow, this could be heavy in its yeah in its other in in another way. Yeah, and I guess well, so to go back to like how I started, I guess making mellow music. Um, was even when I was in Crimson Curse, Locust, and all that stuff, I had a four track and I would just sit and make my own mellow stuff. I would put a microphone out when it was raining and record that and then like write and just play and record something over, you know. So I was always kind of making like mellow mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and when Christopher and I lived together, we also started discovering uh, Nick Drake. Um, Nick Drake and Red House Painters, those two, those two particularly those two stand out in my memory of something that kind of like shifted our style of making music. Right. Um, and the easiest way is like the, we wrote four songs when we first started Tristeza and they were in drop D. Um, <laughs> and then from then on, we had this extremely weird tuning that we used that I still use today. Um, that, you know, can be dropped. It's a couple strings dropped here or there, but basically it kind of stemmed from, discovering that Nick Drake never played in standard tuning. Um, Mark Hoslick, who's in Red House Painters, never played in standard tuning. Um, so we'd learned all these kinds of like different tunings and alternate things. And also like just like putting your fingers in certain places and following the trajectory of the tuning of those strings kind of created this like new thing. And that's where we were like, whoa, this is cool. And that's how, <laughs> how we did, you know, we played our first show in, um, in our house, in our, in our living room with um, Joan of Arc. Nice. Tim was a good friend. And I just interviewed through. Tim yeah. recently. <laughs> I was wondering if you, like I saw, I was wondering if you had Tim cause I saw yeah. you had Mike and yeah. Um, but, um, but anyhow, um, just that whole, like this, that also discovering bands like that, like Joan of Arc, that were doing kind of right. really cool, like different, you know, they weren't the get up kids. They weren't like Jimmy Eat worlds or they weren't like, you know, the things that were, there was just this whole other circuit of like indie, smaller 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 bands um playing in basements and playing in houses that were right. like, making really cool interesting music and that kind of was like and a whole different group of people yeah that too yeah like look different like yeah in had different zines right totally totally <laughs> but also like midwest and they still like wore their hearts on their sleeves and they were still like really open they were still super vulnerable they were super honest warm awesome people to be around you know um I don't know. I mean, I feel like I could go through like That's really cities cool, by city though. and just like finding but all I these. love that you're saying the cities. Like yeah. I haven't had a conversation. Like there really was these other flavors. Like you're right. The yeah. Chicago thing. Like I, I all of a sudden I see a different color. Yeah. Or Chicago, like, like I embraced like the first time I went too because then it was like Martin, Martin from Los Crudos and like we, that's, that's where we first stayed and, and we had that experience in Reckless Records and like playing like um, some warehouses there and like, you know, being involved in that scene with like Fireside Bowl and um, Milai and um, uh, God, I forget a lot of the other bands' names back then. But then also a new era of bands from Chicago that I had a really big connection with was like, you know, like 90 Day Men and um, 
who's Rob. I'm still friends with um, Brian too. I mean, I still like remember those guys. Wow. Um, and we did a split together when, we, when I was in Go Go Go. You know, like there's just like this whole I don't know. There's just whole commu- there's always these amazing communities within each city that kind of like represent that city to me in a way, like of just like the people you know? and then supportive. Yeah, and supportive. I was like, oh, yeah. this is your new thing. Cool, yeah. play this show. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll play with it. You. Doesn't yeah. need to be. Chug a chug a hardcore. It doesn't right. need to be whatever. It I remember is. Um, Crimson Curse. We played at the Michigan Fest, and also Tristeza did. Like basically, Crimson Curse. Those guys flew out, which was also like a kind of a crazy <laughs> thing, like a mind blowing thing. <laughs> I think it was also right after J- JP had done Jerry Springer. Um, what did he go on again as? What did so he do? He went on actually for Jerry Springer. He. Um, they just concocted this story. Um, my ex girlfriend was actually involved in it too. She was on it. Um, JP and Alicia were a couple in real life. Um, they also ran 3-1-G together and stuff like that. Um, and they basically concocted this like love triangle story or but turned into another, like everybody, everybody just cheating on each other with under the same roof, basically. Scott Bybin was involved too. I don't know if you know Scott Bybin. No. He did Bloodlink Records. Um, right. In Philly and... Um, he yeah, put out so, the frail thing. Yeah. He put out totally, frail. Th- okay, yeah. wow. There's a lot of stuff, rad stuff on Bloodlink. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like there was this whole like just kind of love. And it was all concocted. Thing. It was all fake. Yeah. Amazing. Was, well, of course, just, I mean they, TV's yeah. fake, but yeah. But it was like <laughs> along the lines. But they got this. They got the flight out. They got hotels. They couldn't see each other. It was this whole th- deal. Anyways, I think I think it was the same time period that we did do that Michigan show. So it was Tristeza played, and then Crimson Curse guys came out, and we also played a Crimson Curse. So one night we did Tristeza. The next night we did Crimson Curse. Same thing. We went to the Fireside Bowl. We played a Tristeza show. The next night we did a Crimson Curse show. Wow. So it was like the totally, and because Christopher and I were both Tristeza and Crimson Curse, and it was this like juxtaposition of like kind of our old worlds and stuff. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, But uh, what did it feel like looking out? Like, was it the same kids? Was it? Yeah, it was all the same kids too. Yeah. And they were all, yeah. I mean, it was a thing. It was like the same kids. Everybody was just open, accepting, like, fans music right. fans just fans of music you know fans of shows fans of live things happening right in front of you um yeah i don't know and it was pre i mean it wasn't like nowadays you go to see a show and it's all on a sound system it's all on a this there's like a you know there's a stage or there's some kind of separation or some kind of whatever but um even in rooms that had those stages and that kind of separation there's still a different feel of it you know it's like kids all over the stage and like everybody was invited up to just like gather around or the yeah. guys would play on the floor and like you know would barely use a sound system no i don't need a mic you know don't mic my amp I'll just turn up you know stuff like that so well it's great that it was yeah. accepted you know that change yeah where they could have been you know the dylan moment where right. it was like judas you know yeah heretic like but no you you were able to um transition into something that you loved and it's still connected so i love that i mean the first two trezeza records for me were how i fell asleep in new york when i first moved there that's cool yeah because spine of sensory and dream signals yeah. or the seven okay cool like yeah. those were like how i fell asleep because it wasn't that it fell asleep it's just it was uh it was so obviously i lived in a shitty apartment yeah. and crazy neighbors and yeah. like but to be able to uh have that i feel like the i didn't think i could remember instrumental music because you right. always think of it as classical 
There's and you're even, forced, I, I still, you know. Yeah, I still think I still know people that are like, I don't know how you write instrumental music. Like they're just so torn. They're like so connected to their yeah. lyric and like the the the, the structure, you know. Um, but now that it's like you listen to it enough, you see the loops, you see the where this is yeah. connected or what that note I've does. I've always written in a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. It still structure. feels like that. Like I always write like that. Yeah, it's instrumental. There might not be actual words, but I'm always that's my structure. Like pretty much to this day, I still yeah. do that. You know, it's still the same thing. It's just that a melody, the vocal is a different is an instrument and it's a different melody or something. You know? And then did it feel like st- doing the Tristezza stuff? Did it feel like did it open again? Like, Oh wow, I've got this whole, like you said, you're seeing the red house painters or you're seeing yeah. those other ways to write. Yeah. It must've just been, okay, now we're going to go in this world. Yeah. It definitely to me felt, I finally, I felt like, I felt like, you know, when I was in the locust and when I was in Guyver and when I was in crimson curse and swing kids and all of that hardcore stuff, I still have a, Look, this is like my first my first tattoo um, on my on that summer tour. I got this in the basement. You know, of locust, course you did. Yeah, lo- on the locust tour, so locust inside my lip. Um, <laughs> and also, I was eighteen and told it was fade after five years. You know, here I am, forty one, and still alive and kicking. But um, anyhow, <laughs> um, uh, that time period was. I was a teenager. I was like. I was it, I was just a sponge. I was discovering this whole world. I right. was like, I'd play shows and my fingers would be bloody from like, you know, beating the shit out of my guitar when I was playing and like throwing myself and stage diving and jumping off bass drums and you know, playing shows naked and just like, doing all of these things that were just like, you know, a teenager. Like, I'm just, oh, this, I'm a te- this is amazing, you know? And then I felt like, okay, cool. I did that. And I kind of then started to discover music that really spoke to me and like creating music that really spoke to me and kind of represented me as a person and what I wanted to do. Um, so that was a kind of a, yeah, a nice, like kind of just fulfilling moment to just start creating. That you could do it. Yeah. It wasn't that you needed to rely on the hardcore band that made the money. I know money in quotes, but like (laughs) money, money and no quotes. Zero quotes. (laughs) Zero Zero money, zero quotes. But just that idea that it wasn't relying on, I need to go do that one record or that one song. Like I can move on and do this. Yeah. And it's this other world. Yeah. And I think the community part, I love that. That you could call the same numbers for two different bands. Yeah. I still have friends from that world, from the same, from like my hardcore days that when I come through on tour, I, those are the guys I call the people like and they're gonna come out and they're gonna come out yeah we're still friends you know it's like it's great it's great <laughs> and then you were when did album leaf was that that was during tristeza too so i started album, album leaf kind of was born because um tristeza was like my main band tristeza was like after after all that hardcore the, the hardcore world tristeza was my main band and um obviously i'm i played more i i play more than just guitar um and during that time so i was always i was making my own music on four track um and i heard a a guy actually um a really big album fan who's become kind of a friend um through the years actually found my first tape that i released um in 98 and it's it's fine you know it's not great it's but it's but it's cool i'm just like oh and it's all guitar based um and it was basically because when I was in Tristeza, everything that I would write for Tristeza that, I don't know, maybe didn't get used or something like that, or any ideas that I would come up with um, that didn't get used kind of became album leaf stuff. And also the 
the biggest piece of the puzzle of how Album Leaf kind of came to be um, really goes back to me playing in Go 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 Earhart, um, which I played drums for Go 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 Earhart. And um, the way that that band operated, and I also learned a lot from those two guys, uh, Mike Vermillion and Ashish Vayas, um, Hash, who he's, he's now plays bass for Thievery Corporation. But back then, those oh, two wow. guys... Um, those two guys, I can't remember how much older Mike was, but I, I want to say he's probably 10 years older than me. And 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 Hash was, he's probably six years older or something like that. Um, but those guys were from a completely different scene in San Diego. They were from just a completely different scene. Like they were not a part of the hard, they were kind of outside looking into the hardcore world, but they had their own thing. The music that they created was really kind of like soul influenced, funk influenced, jam influenced. Um, influenced by like wire and the fall and um yeah that's a different you know, scene it's a totally different scene right <laughs> and that is also how i he's he for instance he's one of my favorite records is um uh plastic ono band john lennon his first solo record it's one of my favorite records mike was the person who played me i mean before that i knew of course he knew all the beatles and right that's kind of stuff but you know unless you kind of pay attention exactly keep going you don't really think about diving into the solo you know no so there was a whole era of music that I was just exposed to from Mike and Hash, and those guys just really, really, I feel like I just need to like thank them for the entirety of my life of just what they exposed me to back in those days because I feel like they got me out of they got me out of a very narrow narrow window of music um, that I w- had discovered, you know. Because it turns out, like, you know, of course John Lennon was massive, but those records kind of went unnoticed and those were kind of the records that like it's kind of equivalent to like you know what we were doing at that time period like bands like wire and you know um the fall and uh those bands joy division um you know the cure i don't know like obviously they, they became massive but like um they started in this small little circuit you know of, of doing things you know um and so it was kind of nice to to be exposed to this whole world of music that was just beyond the, um, the kind of like, I don't want to call it superficial, but just kind of like what was cool to be listening to in the, in the moment, you know? And then they just exposed me to this whole world of, here's this just, other thing going on. Yeah, Turn, this whole yeah. other thing, you know, that's so First cool. Time, like really listening to like the stooges or like listening to but someone's um, had has to sit you down and yeah, do it. Yeah. Cause you don't, I mean, back then you didn't discover those things like, and, and still actually like I have this, um, this guy that works with me sometimes he's 23 24 and like the stuff that he does not know blows my mind I'm just like wow he came up in like the whole digital world you know like I was he was three years old when I started touring and it's just kind of like insane like what happened and like what he was not exposed to and what he didn't discover even though like there's so much discovery to be had now right but you still have it's still it's a different I feel like you don't catch things because there's an overset, like an over oversharing of things, you know. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. So to do. much. And also yeah. that not saying it has to be physical, right? Because there was mixtapes that I couldn't right. see anything. I was still yeah. listening to music. Oh, what was that? Me? Ah, I don't remember what it was. I never wrote it yeah. down. But there's this overload of like I, I needed to see something. Yeah. To have a connection to it, and I think you sitting with those guys and them playing you, yeah, those records and maybe letting you look through stuff and yeah. just being like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, it was like when I first like heard like Ike and Tina records, you know, like like just this whole like kind of world of music that was obviously very important to 
current music, you know. And then to album started. leave, it seemed yeah. like it was permeating right into that. So basically, the, the reason why album leave started was because that band Go 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 Heart, we would just practice, and basically everything was recorded straight to tape. Practices were just mic'd up and recorded, and then furthermore edited, and that's how songs were written. Like it was just basically. It was basically live jams, and we would just jam and jam and jam, and that was like songs. That's how songs started. After practice, um, I would sit around and I would hang out with Mike, listening to music or whatever. He also had a Rhodes piano, and so I was like, "What's that thing?" And then basically, you know, that's when I first discovered the Rhodes. And since everything was always mic'd up, when I would be noodling and playing around on the Rhodes, he was recording me. Wow! And that became my first record. It was just basically him spontaneously tracking and recording me and being and him and me like kind of laughing or you know just oh that's this is cool and he'd be like i tracked that i recorded that and me discovering things as i was playing too like i would just kind of like sit down and like just make spontaneous changes but still playing but parts back and forth so i was kind of like inadvertently making a song not really knowing it and then it'd be like oh cool and then i'd go back and like track strings like a string machine on it or I'd go wow like then oh the drums are set up so let me just put drums on it and like and that kind of became my first album record and then and then in, um, I think it was 2000, must have been 2000, after Spine and Sensory, um, an online distro company called InSound. Right. It was like basically kind of the first. That was first, a big deal. It was a big deal. That was the first of, oh, I can go on the internet and order a record, put in, buy it via credit card or whatever it is, <laughs> and, and it put in my up. address and it shows up in my house. You know, like, this is insane. You know? That's insane. It's, so that was like what InSound was. They were like the kind of the first of that. Um, and InSound started doing this thing called the Tour Support Series um, where they would just like, basically the bands would go and make their own recordings and, you know, do the recording themselves, um, pay for it, however, whatever, whatever, what have you, you know, just like make the songs, give those songs to InSound. InSound would then press a CD. They'd press like, I think a thousand and they would give you 500 um, and then they'd keep the other and sell them on the site. And that was that 500 they gave to you as tour support. So it was like tour support series. So you had this like thing that thing you could to sell. sell that would, you know, generate right. income that you didn't have to pay for. Um, and then there was a long series of that, um, that they had done. And throughout that, they also started, they decided to start a label, um, called Tiger Style. And so we had done a, Tristeza had done a tour support, uh, release and we kind of developed this really good friendship with Ari, the owner of founder of InSound. Um and Tiger Style came around, they kind of like they came out and they're like, hey, like we want to put out the next Tristeza record. Um great. And and also we want to put out album leaf too. Like we like your first record. Like let's see what you can do. So basically like that was the first time that I got like kind of like some support behind me and realized that I had two different projects that I could kind of do. And, I, and it was, and they also gave me like a budget in advance. So I bought my computer, you know, I bought a mixer, I bought a mic and just figured it kind out. Kind of like figured it out. Yeah. just figured it out how to do it. Um, and then my second record came out one day I'll be on time, which is basically kind of my first like realized actual like, here I am making a solo record. You know, the first record was kind of like a improv kind of weird thing, but the second one was like my actual record. That record then fell in the hands of Sigaros in um, at a shop in Iceland. Um, they then invited me to open their tour in 2001, 
and then kind of from there the kind of the success and popularity of albumy started to grow how did they find it just record shop that's amazing they, they t- basically told me that like they were at the store i think it was yonsi or 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 george um but i think it was yonsi but they basically the guy at the record shop said hey this is a cool record you should check it out it was a cd and then like they went back to their studio put it on listened to it because they were looking for support bands and then the moment <laughs> who was that record store guy i know yeah i have no idea but like how did he like I'm, i love I'm imagining i know the record store in iceland it's, it has to be that like that one little shop um and i mean yeah as we were like saying earlier like you, you unless you were in it you can't really explain it and, and i don't think anyone will ever understand it if you we knew it, it before the internet yeah. we yeah. lived in that world before it yeah that's hard to are, even my sister who's just a couple years older missed a little bit like right. it was just too old like her her husband like i have to fix you know the tv or i i need to like the technology stuff yeah. like they're just there's some like sweet spot <laughs> right with like didn't have it now we were in it and we know how to use it and yeah. i guess generations after us knew how to market themselves even better yeah i remember i mean Tristeza played a show in the Middle East upstairs, which I guess you were in Boston, so you're familiar with Middle yeah. East. Yeah. So, um, which Mahmoud, who's my current booking agent, like, and I've worked with forever, booked Middle East, um, Mahmoud Sheikh. Um, and um, it's funny, too. I've worked with that guy for like, well, like 20 years. It's crazy. <laughs> um, but anyhow. Welcome like he, to the podcast. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and, uh, so we booked this show and there was this band that played too, wanted to open for us. And Tristezza, like we'd hit Boston so many times. We were like doing great. We we're selling out Middle East upstairs. Like we sold out the previous time we did it again. We sold it out um, Middle East upstairs, which is like 150 people on it. But, but still, like, it still, it feels like, oh my God, East. everybody's there. And they're like, yeah, you know, they like, it's, it's, it's great. It's still 150 people. Right. Totally. Um, <laughs> anyhow, this band from New York wanted to play as well so they to open the sh- to open they did like direct support or like middle slot you know and um they only got paid you know 100 uh some whatever x amount of dollars and that band was interpol and a week later turn on the bright lights came out and boom um and i remember like we had sold out we got paid the most we ever got paid for a show i think it was like a thousand dollars or something like that like it was like this yeah thing. We're like oh my god this is so cool but then to fast forward maybe 10 years i actually ended up playing in a um meeting um sam fogarino and playing in a band with him um we had we had this band together uh called magnetic morning for a moment um it was it was i sam um, Adam Franklin from Swerve Driver um, and these two other guys and Adam I'd met it was kind of it was another like kind of weird small like weird world where I toured with the band that Adam was playing guitar for in Europe oh. um, and then met Adam um, anyhow um, and it's kind of funny because Sam remembers that that show an opening for us playing that show getting the extra money like it's just like that's cool he remembered yeah um and then also sam has a hardcore background because he's he's about 10 years older i think than the rest of the band um and he came up in florida in like in like a hardcore scene in florida what Um, years probably been 90s early 90s um wow that was kind of like a nice thing because i felt like morning again 
and like, yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember. The, I'm his, sure his band names. I probably there's a bunch of those. Yeah. Wow, was he in those bands? Like, he, he was in bands back back way back when. Really, in, in Florida, like in hardcore, and I and I remember that like because to me, there was still like I still kind of had like a sense of I don't I want to say like I was probably all jealousy really to, when I want to think about it, but like bands are just like like that Interpol did nothing, put out a record, boom, they blew up, right? It's like there's no there's no sense of paying dues. There's no floors right. being slept on. There's no like you know community being built. There's no like it's just everything kind of being handed. Lightning in a bottle. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, and I remember meeting Sam and thinking like, well, at least Sam had that into him. You know, he did. He paid his dues. He did the time. <laughs> he did the stuff. You know, so that's okay. That's cool. And I love that record actually too. That record I think is great. I remember getting the EP this like three song thing from right. matador before and being like oh shit yeah like this is this, is, this is something you know? yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i mean turn on bright lights i still listen to that record i think it's really great um that's cool but, but it that- did take me a long time to even myself to like let go of that mentality and like let in certain music like and be let myself actually like it and not be like such a hater of of things you know um in the last 10 years, I've become a lot more lighter, you know, but I did come, go through a time period where I was... Or they didn't have to be that route. It yeah. could have been another way. Yeah. Or there's there's ways to pay your dues other way. I, I right. feel the same way. Yeah, totally. The, well, with Album Leaf, I think, too, the... What, like, from the Cigarettes moment and, like, having that tour and having more people pay attention was that... Was that must have been an interest... I mean, yes, people were paying attention with Tristeza. There was stuff happening. But, yeah. like, that's another click of the dial yeah i mean i remember when i made in a safe place um it was after touring with cigaros in 2003 i did two tours um one solo opening for them in europe and then um and then i couldn't afford to bring anybody out for that tour so then basically from that tour um uh orion carrie and maria um started playing with me live while I, while I would open for them in Europe. Um, you know, Carrie would come out and play a couple songs and Ori would play drums mm-hmm. and Ori would play violin and it was this cool kind of thing. And so I kind of felt like I had like all of a sudden a different incarnation or a different lineup and a different sound and a different feel from these from these people playing. And then when we went back to the States, the rest of my band um, at the time like came out and did that tour. But also like, Carrie would still come out and play and Maria would still come out and play and Ori would so it was kind of like this mm-hmm. this mix and um, at the end of that tour they basically said like oh you should come out to Iceland you know sometime like come out to our studio make a record why not you know and I was just like thinking like oh that's awesome but I couldn't imagine going to like Iceland it seems so just mysterious and magical and almost like it didn't exist back right. then you know it's just like what how do you even get there like does a plane I, you know just silly thoughts you know it's 2003 um, or 2001 and um, so I went out and I made that record and in the, during the course of making that record Tiger, I was going to release it on Tiger Style um, but then I ended up getting um, and actually Dave Brown was managing me at that time um, and we reached out to Sub Pop um, because Tony at Sub Pop, Tony K at Sub Pop, used to also have this band or this label in L.A. When he lived in L.A., he had a label called Waxploitation. Right. And he put out a band called Strictly Ballroom. Yes. Which was Jimmy Tamborello from Postal Service. And, and then I also, Tristez and Strictly Ballroom, created this really big friendship back in late 90s, I guess. 
Jimmy Hay from Strictly Ballroom started playing bass for Tristeza. I started playing in Strictly Ballroom um, keyboards for them. And we were kind of this like kind of family, like LA, San Diego, Connect family. Like we played Whiskey A Go Go. We met at a um, KEXP. No, not KEXP. I always get that. KCRW? No, not KCRW. The um, KXLU. Oh, KXLU. Um, KXLU showcase. Oh, sacrilege. The, How yeah, do we forget KXLU? I'm sorry. Yeah. KXLU gods. <laughs> I always, I always, because they're all K something, K something. And you're like, oh, God, like, mix them all up, you know? And a lot of stuff happened. A lot of um, the L.A. kind of that world of, beach, of Strictly Ballroom and um, Paul Fisher, too. Exactly. I mean, yeah, KXLU. Like started at KXLU. Jimmy Tamburello was a, um, was a, had a show there. And my friend Mitch um, still has a show there. And I actually did it like a couple of years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, went down there. Um, it was kind of cool to relive it. And Tristeza played there. So Tristeza played um, a live you know show on, K, on KXLU. And then also... Um, brought us onto, and it's the same sense. That was the same sense of like, we were in San Diego. We didn't have a connection to LA. We went up, we played at KXLU, and then boom, all of a sudden, like, we kind of, then we were playing at the Smell in, you know, with Strictly Ballroom. We met wow. Strictly Ballroom and blown away. They had two drummers. It was crazy. Like, it was just like, and they were making this really beautiful music, and it was like really kind of like, um, like really beautiful. And then they would just like blast into this like huge thing. And then, you know, they were a really cool band, and I started playing piano with them. Um, and that was a, like a mix there. And so basically that long, also during that time I played with like seam and with like, um, modest mouse and, um, so before, they would just they, call before you they were blow, before they were blown up. They would just know? call you and say, Hey, we need a keyboard player. Hey, we need so this. Was, so during that time, Jimmy Hay and I became really close friends and Jimmy Hay was in LA and I was in San Diego and he, we would just like drive back and he would come down and hang out with all of us. Um, I would come up here and hang out with them, you know, spend like days up here. Um, and we just hang out. We were just all like really tight friends. Um, and so that was kind of how it was. Yeah. That's like, so cool. Show, like, you know, Jimmy Hay did that, did Tristez's second tour with, he was the bass player for the second tour. Um, that's anyhow, so cool. And yeah. then, then, so sub hop found so, you through Jimmy. So no. So basically I had met Tony during that time period too. So Tony and I were good friends um, before he was at Sub Pop. And then um, he moved to Seattle to go to Sub Pop. And then when we would come through Tristeza, we would actually stay at Tony's house and sleep on his floor and hang out with him. And then, um, yeah, when I was making that record in a safe place, um, I sent him what I was doing and the story behind it. And they were like, oh, I want to put it out. So then that's how sub bought that's how that that's amazing started because tony was an old friend um and yeah funny how that works out yeah totally you know that record then being on sub pop and putting out that record obviously propelled me into a much bigger you know just put way more visibility on me and um you know because i remember like touring with cigaros um 2003 doing that second tour, playing at Radio City Music Hall, playing like all of these massive places and then going out about a month later on my own and thinking like, okay, cool, I'm going to go off that momentum. It was like still like, nah, nothing, <laughs> nothing's clicking there, you know? <laughs> I got to work. Like, I, I yeah, got to work still. still. still got work to do, you know? And then, yeah. And then so being on Sub Pop definitely helped that, having that promotion and that press machine and that, you know. I mean, I feel like the Into the Blue Again was the... I feel like the a lot of people, I don't know your Spotify numbers, but I feel like right. those songs connected deeper and it, having that happen on that record versus your first 
or right. second was it's almost like they gave you time to cultivate yeah yeah i definitely kind of i guess it started to feel more of like falling into a sound right with with, with in a safe place so i was still kind of discovering like what i was wanting to do and you know like just kind of making songs that just were happening discovering electronics discovering programming discovering like a lot of you know and i feel like into the blue again it was when i kind of fell into what i felt like was my you know my sound had not really i mean like like my sense of melody my sense of atmosphere mm-hmm. my sense of like those things didn't really change um but like my, my sense of focus i think more so fell into place with into the blue again yeah, and I think yeah. those songs and the the singing I was more comfortable. I was older. Yeah, and you know, three I started, songs had singing. Yeah, I started singing on on in a safe place, but I only sing one song. And and Paul from Blackheart came out and and did that with me. And Paul basically kicked me into gear to sing. He gave me like I don't know how many shots of vodka, and I was. <laughs> really loose and they could hear it in that take it's on your way and i'm just like it's the first time i sang on it and it's just like Ugh, you know i was like my, like really deep voice and just didn't really know what i was doing yeah pulsing over the top of it and then and then, yeah but then yeah into the blue again was when i was like okay i'm gonna take the lead of singing and do it myself um and that was kind of yeah where i just kind of like felt was much more comfortable mm-hmm. um I knew about recording, I knew about making records and I went to the studio and did it and kind of knew what I was doing and had like a, you know, a clear kind of, yeah, you're comfortable. Yeah, I was comfortable. Yeah. I feel like that's the, that's when you're going to have the yeah. right. So you were comfortable with Cigaros. Yeah. There's that making of documentary for making that record too. It's on. Oh, YouTube, right. Yeah, which is pretty cool to kind of go back and see. I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So do all this kind of, all this stuff. And it was very focused, you know, have you saved stuff over the years? Not just gear. Cause I know you're, got crazy amounts of gear yeah. but like photos or tour laminates or flyers I have, yeah, and I stuff definitely, i have a photo album from my cigarose tour tour cigarose in 2003 um which is pretty fun to look back on um i know i have stashes of photos somewhere i have a chest that's in my garage that i i know i just put things in there and i kind of don't go back to it and i've and i'm always curious like you know to like open it up and see what's in there again um I've I mean, made I bands do like it. I, yeah, I don't feel like I save. I have laminates and stuff like that because laminates. Flyers are, I, I remember or... the first time I got a laminate, I was like, "Whoa, this is this is big time!" You know, <laughs> the first time I made I a can laminate. go anywhere. Yeah, or when like Japan like treats you very well, and like it, like and I did I do fairly well in Japan. I remember the first time going to Japan. I just, it's two shows that I had a laminate Japan album leaf tour. It was a laminate. Serious. Like, Whoa, this is cool. You know, like, <laughs> um, super super funny. I remember when I played Radio City Music Hall, there was a specific show laminate for that oh only. of course yeah, it's it was like like two point like print it was really funny but it's still on there yeah it's still on there it's like, <laughs> so some saving some stuff it's on a box one day you'll look at it yeah i think so and my, and my parents and my grandma used to like save clippings and stuff like the actual like print clippings from like early tristez and early album lift days do you have those um, i do have those okay yeah. good actual print stuff yeah one day I'll make you scan them. Yeah, because I know that you're, that's you. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the bands that I've made go through their stuff. I've got Jimmy World to go through their stuff. Yeah. Um, do you remember a photographer, Paul Drake? Paul Drake was my tour manager. And, I mean, he was tour managing out the driving during their blow up. You know, he, he has like, amazing he photos there. of all those guys. Yeah. And, of course, you know, so I'm like, how have you not had a book? And I just think, like, those yeah. people, like I talked earlier about, like, not, not the 
musicians, but like yeah. the tour manager or yeah. like those people. He taught so many bands. His well, his era too. Like he started in like the Christie Front Drive era. Like that whole he was he was early early Denver. You know, yeah, and took off and yeah. I remember he was our Tristezza tour manager through in Europe and drive yeah drive, drove us tour managers when he was in Prague. Um, would stay at his house and he, yeah he was I mean he's he's awesome he's such a sweetheart yeah you know the the connections like that and right it's almost like still reaping rewards now yeah for your bands right totally and for everything you're doing and I wanted to mention the Eastern Glow recordings yes well you started that to re- reissue stuff that hadn't been out or that was discontinued um it's more stuff that was discontinued and out of print um and also uh, being able to I guess being able to do it too. So that was kind of the thing too. Cause I, f- I remember, so after my sub pop, um, contract was up and I was kind of, and, and I did an EP, it was forward, forward return EP. Um, and also, uh, my first soundtrack was towards distraction and I wanted to just put those out. And so I, I literally just pressed CDs. And so that was kind of the beginning of Eastern Glow, but it wasn't named that or thought of. Um, I think the first official release was maybe when I got the rights for Seal Beach, which Paul Fisher put out. Um, Paul and Dave on Holiday Mat or Better Looking. Um, and when he gave me the rights back for that, I like pressed it up on vinyl because it had never been pressed on vinyl. So I was like, oh, cool. I can do that. And then pressed up Forward Return on vinyl. Um, did a seven inch um when I was kind of going to just, before I went with relapse, I was kind of um, just in line to just do it myself. Um, and so we'd press up a seven inch to, cause I kind of had that mentality too. It was like, Oh, seven inch. Nobody cares about seven inches anymore. I don't think. And nobody really probably seeks out to buy them. But for me, this is just like a, it's a staple in my, yeah. like in my vinyl upbringing and just my discovery of things was like getting somebody seven inch, you know? Um, so I felt like pushing, putting a seven inch out and making an exclusive like vinyl only mm-hmm. song, um, which I think is still exclusively vinyl only. Um, but yeah, and then starting to think about it more where like I got the, you know, one day I'll be on time and um, orchestrated rise of fall were just straight up out of, out of print. They were just gone. And, and then I think, somebody said that they saw it on the wall at Amoeba for like $175. And I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I want to put, I want to redo that. Yeah. And like have it be accessible. And like, I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's a lot of the vinyl hungry and the vinyl. No, it's fucked up. Do. I don't care yeah. that it's this color and there's only four. I want right. to just play it. Yeah. I want to, I want the music. I don't, you know, like people do like, I, and I know that it's like, I was a part of this, uh, this, this, this guy has this, vinyl channel called too many records and um he literally does have too many records he just has a you know he's it's insane what he has um but his music taste is also very across the board like he has right. like, all of pearl jams records but then he has like all of like fx twins records you know so his his, his across taste the board. is across the board um but he's all about the variants he's all about the like this and he's all about digging out and finding this like particular press and doing wow. this whole thing and then like um and I mean, yeah, there's something to be said for that, for sure. Um, but for me, yeah, I want the music, and I just want the music to be accessible. That's why I was never opposed to streaming or to Napster or to any of those things. I was always a, like, I would rather people have have it and be able to hear it than... Because they're going to be more apt to go see yeah. you. 
go buy the t-shirt exactly that was my that was always my statement during the napster years was like can't download a t-shirt yeah and there was like you know i was thinking the first time that like this couple that was in their 60s came to my show at fireside bowl you know like if you've been to the fireside bowl it's a yes it's a dump it's like it's a shitty sound system it's a dumpy room the bowling out and they came because of napster they came because of napster and they stuck around they waited they said hi they wanted to be like hey we discovered you on napster and i was like there they are with their like cd and their t-shirts that they bought and like and i was just like that is fucking awesome there was there's a value to that there's a value to that that's more important than being like fuck you pay me or like you know right of course pay me too you know like you're still putting out art discovery music but discovering like having it there you know making it easy yeah we make it hard right we meaning music we make it hard right it's not it shouldn't be that hard yeah it should not be yeah (laughs) Uh, I want to get quickly get into the soundtrack stuff because I think that's really interesting and a natural progression almost from Tristeza and Album Leaf because right. you can hear those as movies right. and TV. Yeah, which is kind of how, it's, it's how it started. I think that record In a Safe Place was also the kind of the, that entire record was used on the TV show, The O.C. Oh, right, right, Every right. single song, except for Over the Pond probably. Um, but every song, and also one of the songs ended up on the soundtrack for the, for the O.C., um, so there was like a time period where like I don't even think I put it together that films could be scored by somebody like me. Really? Yeah, I never put it together. Like it never really made sense to me. Like I I was I had a lot of success in the licensing and my songs being used for sync um but never really thought about scoring. It just it just didn't click. You know, I just didn't think that like Right. You know, I I wasn't familiar, even in those years, like I wasn't familiar with like who Hans Zimmer was or who like, um, I think I I knew who Danny Elfman was for sure, but I didn't, but also to that, I felt like, oh, that's like, you know, Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo and he just kind of makes, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. I love Pee Wee's, you know, I love, I love all Tim Burton, like, and it kind of felt like a, a pair, but I didn't really put it together that it's like, oh no, he's actually scoring and putting, you know, anyhow, I mean, that was kind of like my my mentality and, 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 and outlook of it. Um, and then like 2004 until, I mean, 2009 really. Um, I just had a lot of like, and I still do have a fair amount of like licensing and sync usage and, and it's, and it's, um, pretty steady. Um, but in 2009, I played this show in, at the launch pad in Albuquerque. Um, and, this guy who uh, plays in a band called Bellini, which is a band from Sicily that Damon Che used to play drums for. Um, but these, these two, this Agostino and Giovanni, um, they're from uh, Sicily, and they basically have this band. Um, and any short story long, basically, um, the bass player for that band was like, was that they had gotten added to the bill of our album leaf show at the launch pad. And um, the bass player for that band struck conversation with me, basically like on our connection with the he plays in Bellini, and I knew mm-hmm. them. And um, when I was in Blackheart, we did shows, a lot of shows with Augustino and Giovanni and, and Sicily and stuff like that. Um, and basically, they he said, "Hey, my friend of mine made this documentary. It's really heavy. It's really this you know kind of beautiful story. She followed this girl with this really like um, you know uh, rare syndrome." Um, and she used a lot of your music in the soundtrack. She wanted you to see it and see if it was cool for you to, to, to let her use your music. And I was like, oh, sure, totally. And then, like, gave me the DVD of the, of the film. 
I sat in the van driving cross country watching it, you know, with like my CD dr- DVD drive, like being yeah, shaken and shit. Like, and I was like, ah, I got to start over, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but like watched it. And um, um, I think it's probably my wife or my manager or somebody of that time. that was just like, you, should, you maybe you should just score it. Like just offer to score it. So I didn't, I was like, okay, cool. And I know she didn't have any money. So I was like, look, can I just, what about if I just score it? I'll just score it for free. Like, well, how about that? You know, like you're going to learn something at the same time. Yeah. And so I had nothing going on and that's basically how that happened. So then that happened. Um, I scored it and it was kind of like a lot of like, you know, I was like doing not sound likes, but obviously like following more of what she had laid in there temp wise, you know, mm-hmm. didn't really have my own voice, um, which is kind of why it turned into something that I could kind of release as a record because there is like, actual songs right. you know because i was following other kind of like guides of temp music that was being used um and then my wife is in film and, in, and is a filmmaker and documentary filmmaker and she has you know a lot of friends and a lot of connections in the documentary world so she kind of like was like hey you should look at my husband he's like starting to that's out. awesome and like basically kind of she like set me down the path of um somebody was looking for a score for their film as, as this wonder uh, the second film I did was called wonder woman, um, untold story of superheroines. Um, and it was a film about wonder woman, how she represents, you know, the growth of feminism and, and, you know, through the years mm-hmm. and how she was as a, you know, one of the only female action heroes, um, dating back to the thirties, um, and how her role changed, um, you know, through the years of the growth of the feminist movement and just, you know, equality and everything and how, so that was that, that film and the filmmaker needed a, um, composer. And so my wife did that connection. And, um, so I scored that film and that was also along the lines of like, she was a little more like she had a heart song and she wanted it to sound like heart. So I made a sound like of heart, you know, like that was that kind of thing where I was like doing a lot of like, you know, um, but also kind of slowly discovering my scoring voice within that film a little bit. Um, and then the producer for that film was a friend of another film that was being, it's just, and it's so kind of spiraled that way, you know, turns out like the narrative films that I've scored, um, now, um, I've done three with these filmmakers, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Justin was actually hired by Dave Brown, my old manager to film me making into the blue again. Wow. Which is that, that video for, that for, exists for was shot by this God, so he already knew you and he knew me and he then years later he made his first film it was all sound design um they released it opened at tribeca um got traction was like kind of a you know a little like genre indie favorite right made their second film or started to make one starting to he wrote a second film came to me and said hey i'd l- love for you to score this film and i remembered him as the guy that I knew from San Diego who came out on tour with me shot, you know, like filmed me and like stuff like that was a cool dude, but I didn't, you know, I was like, Oh, okay, cool. I saw his first film that he made resolution and I was just blown away. Wow. And then, I mean, yeah, three films later, their fourth, I've done three films. Now we have our film opening this weekend in Toronto, um, with starring Jamie Dornan and Anthony Mackie. So it's like, what's what's that one called? Synchronic. Um, you know, and it's just like, here we are. We've just like grown together in that world. And I still get kind of work based off films that I've done with them. And I've kind of established my own. That's amazing. Kind of thing. 
I fell into it really, and but it was also very natural for me to do. But the approach know? of it was the same as you driving to Michigan, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you met the, you're meeting the people, and then yeah. by the time you get there, it's just that's the that's amazing. Yeah. And falling into that and then being able to the do that type of music and being able to be expressive that way. Yeah. And now I've done six films in the last year. Two of two of those were my wife's, um, and then four others. And wow. I was back to back to back to back and it's it the the juggling of album leaf and scoring is, is a little tough. But it's also, you know, I'm I don't know, I'm I'm a father, I'm older, I don't have as much interest in spending half my life on tour anymore and it's, so it's kind of it's making sense you know <laughs> but i do want to continue album leaf and i do want to like find ways to do things and make them make it really special and make it more of an experience rather than just coming in and seeing an album leaf show you know like i want it to be something behind it you know something that's and then the visuals more, too which yeah. i know yeah so what's the so is that what's next kind of juggling the scoring because that's turning into a beast on, yeah. on, on top yeah, of the album leaf. yeah i mean that's kind of you know i i have things that i want to do and release uh, you know with album leaf and i also want you know the uh, this year alone we're starting uh, a project of basically working with modern current artists that i truly love and respect uh, the music that they're making and having them kind of relook at that record in a safe place and having them start new versions of those songs and working together to kind of recreate that record in a cool way because i do want to celebrate that record um but at the same time i personally am not really a fan of the go out and play the record front to back thing you know i know that fans probably appreciate that but for me like i just want to keep it more interesting and more exciting personally um because also we've if you've seen album leaf in the last you played all those songs we played those songs yeah i mean it's, it's not you know, it's not rare the, that we're going to play. Yeah, it's not the deep yeah, cut. It's not the deep, yeah. We, we're going to play those songs, you know. So I want to be able to represent those songs in a cool way and have them be something that's new and fresh or facelifted or, or whatever it is, you know, or have somebody play somebody else's version of it or um, just kind of create like a special happening around it rather than just, here's the song, here's how it was, let's play it. Right. You know? So Looking at things a different way. Yeah. I remember I played a ATP I played at a ATP festival in um in uh England in 2015 and they and that was the first time they I was asked to play in a safe place. Um and also Max Richter was asked to play Blue Notebooks and the Note Twist was asked to play Neon Golden, which is one of my favorite records of all time. And when I saw the way that they performed Neon Golden, it's that's I think when something clicked for me because they didn't play it in sequence songs were like just like improvised and like jammed on and everything and you could tell that they were playing the record but it was just they went in so many different places it was just like they were enjoying it it was a performance it was like you know they put together a lot of thought and like put together this whole thing and and performed that record in a way that was like i want a recording of that as well as being able to put the record on and listen to that you know so that kind of changed my perspective of of how to do something like that and and wanting to do something different
Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com